Fired Up Show starts right now. And welcome, everybody. Welcome to Fired Up right here on WJMS Media. This is Steve. I host the podcast each week. I'm very happy that you are joining me. We've got a lot to talk about in this show. Uh, I am going to caveat it and say that uh, out of necessity, I'm going to bend my practice of not talking so much about political figures, but with what we've got going on, uh, it's inevitable for this show. Uh, But first of all, as always, let's start with our rundown on where we are with the pandemic uh, roaming across the country. In the COVID front, we've got 98.9 million cases uh, reported. Uh, That's actually up uh, only about 300,000 cases since last week. And uh, we have 1.088 million people who have died. Uh, That's also a uh, lower increase in the death rate. And 651 million people have been vaccinated. So what we're seeing on the COVID front is kind of a leveling out. However, let's not get lulled into a false sense of security uh, because uh, we know that there's a new variant out there. And, you know, it, it is still something that could rear its ugly head in a more vicious way uh, if we are not cautious. Uh, as far as the MPOX goes, uh, we're at 29,603 cases. And we actually have some news related to uh, MPOX uh, coming out of the Biden administration this week. And uh, the Biden administration announced uh, on Friday that it will lift its public health emergency declaration for MPOX uh, following a steady decline in cases that has convinced officials the outbreak is under control. Uh, The Health and Human Services Department issued a formal notice saying in January it will wind down the emergency uh, and uh, putting it on track to expire by January 31st. So, this is uh, an, an important milestone, and you know it, it represents the efforts to combat the virus while taking into account that the White House still plans to keep its MPOX response operation intact in hopes of further suppressing uh, the spread of the virus and potentially uh, eradicating it you know, from the U.S. altogether. Uh, But the flexibilities, funding, and additional resources that the administration sought to free up by declaring an emergency in August uh, no longer are seen as being uh, critical to the effort. So, you know, the the HHS is saying that due to the lower number of cases, uh, it doesn't expect that it's going to need to renew its emergency declaration. So, you know, that's definitely some good news. Uh, We still need to maintain our vigilance to do what uh, has been recommended in order to minimize the spread of the disease, much as we uh, continue to have to be vigilant in our fight against COVID. So, you know, while that's a positive uh, result, a positive outcome, uh, as I said, let's not get complacent and think that everything is all clear because uh, it can, you know, and, and possibly could resurface if we are less than vigilant in our efforts uh, to combat these diseases. So I'm um, pleased that, that that is taking place. 
and you know we will keep you posted on any news and further updates on the COVID and the MPOX fronts as we go forward here. Moving on to the political news, uh, we've got a, a couple of stories we're going to bring to you on, on this episode, uh, and we're definitely going to be talking about uh, what's coming up in Georgia. Uh, actually, by the time this show airs, uh, it will likely be Election Day, so we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But I want to start off with uh, a vote, a decision made by the Democratic National Committee uh, that came out on Friday, and uh, multiple news sources are reporting this. Uh, the DNC uh, has vote or has voted or will vote uh, a plan to make South Carolina the first primary uh, in in the uh, presidential election cycle. Uh, while the plan will still need to be approved by the full uh, DNC, uh, all indications are it's likely to pass. Uh, and this uh, occurred on Friday when the Democratic National Committee, or DNC, their Rules and Bylaws Committee, voted to make Ca South Carolina the first state on the presidential primary calendar. Uh, this would replace Iowa, which has hosted the first presidential uh, nominating contest for 50 years. So this upheaval of the nominating calendar uh, it, it comes uh, largely from an effort spearheaded by President Biden to readjust the order, uh, po probably and possibly to make the primaries more demographically representative of the nation. Uh, per Biden's recommendation, the DNC ordered Nevada and New Hampshire to concurrently vote second three days after South Carolina, with Georgia to follow the week after that and Michigan to round out the first five contests two weeks after Georgia. Now, while this proposal is still going to need to be approved by the full DNC, uh, which their meeting will take place uh, early in 2023, but as of now, according to information, uh, it's likely that it is going to pass. So uh, according to House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn, the only Democratic member of South Carolina's Democrat, um, I'm sorry, uh, South Carolina's congressional delegation. Um, and as you recall, in the run up to the 2020 election, it was his endorsement of Biden, which led to uh, the turnaround in the electorate that ultimately uh, resulted in Biden being uh, elected president of the United States. Um, he made a statement uh, saying that the move was, you know, Biden's idea, that he didn't ask to be first, and that he was surprised by it. Um, he knows, he being Biden, knows what South Carolina did for him, and he's demonstrated that time and time again by giving respect to South Carolina, Clyburn said. Uh, DNC chair of Jamie, um, Jamie Harrison of South Carolina echoed Clyburn said he did not know Biden was recommending South Carolina to leave the presidential nomination calendar until Thursday evening. Uh, he claimed he wanted the process to play out without his influence. And according to a quote from Harrison, uh, he said, folks, the Democratic Party looks like America. He said, this proposal reflects the best of our party as a whole, and I will continue to make our party and our country stronger. So, 
you know the the upshot is um, it removes the Iowa caucuses as the first uh, test of presidential candidates uh, in the election process and moves that to states that are both battleground states and states with uh, more diverse populations. Uh, as uh, DNC Chair Harrison said, that better reflect uh, the dem demographics of the United States. So, you know, it, it could be a good thing. I believe that it is a positive step. I think it will create uh, a lot more energy coming into the, uh, the run-up of uh, primaries to the general election. And we will see how it plays out uh, as we get closer to 2024 and as the true primary season starts. Uh, all in all, though, I mean, I am uh, in, in favor of it. I think it is a good idea. And as I said, we'll see how it plays out uh, in reality. Because if you recall, uh, the endorsement by Representative Clyburn uh, in South Carolina uh, turned around not just uh, the campaign prospects of then candidate Joe Biden, but it brought uh, the pretty much the full force of the Democratic political machine in line with moving Biden's uh, candidacy forward, ultimately leading to his nomination and election as president of the United States in 2020. So it's clear that the, the voters of South Carolina, led by their representative Jim Clyburn, uh, did Joe Biden a huge solid in uh, casting their votes overwhelmingly for him. And it should be noted that among that large support coming out of South Carolina, the, the biggest block of those voters uh, that were backing Biden were from uh, people of color and you know poor and working class communities who responded to Representative Clyburn's call for support for Joe Biden and uh, as I said ultimately turned the the tide around on his fortunes as a candidate for the office of president so you know we will uh, continue to follow uh, more such news and and events uh, as we now uh, move kind of officially into the uh, cycle uh, running up to the 2024 election. Even though it's two years away, uh, the, the task and the, the strategies and the tactics of you know, election for the office of president uh, in the, the annual or the, the quad, quadrennial uh, presidential elections has already started. Uh, as you recall, and we mentioned on this show, on the Republican side, uh, former President Donald Trump announced his candidacy uh, for the Republican nomination uh, for his uh, potential third term, or third try rather, I should say, uh, at uh, being President of the United States. And um, that was uh, almost two weeks ago. Uh, so we're underway. Um, I, I know I said, you know, a couple of shows ago 
after the midterms that I was looking forward to maybe a little bit of quiet time uh, from a political standpoint. Okay, I was wrong. I admit it. <laughs> so uh, while we're on the subject of uh, the former president, um, Donald Trump, uh, he created a huge shockwave this past week uh, when he uh, tweeted out or truthed out from his uh, social media platform, Truth Social, uh, a, a, a statement, and I'm going to read it for you, and then uh, we'll, we'll dive into it. So this is what uh, former President Trump wrote on Truth Social. Quote, Do you throw the presidential election results of 2020 out and declare the rightful winner, or do you have a new election? A massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulations, and articles, even those found in the Constitution, close quote, Trump wrote uh, in that post on his social network. A accused, quote, big tech, close quote, of working closely with Democrats. Uh, and he closed out with, quote, our great founders did not want and would not condone false and fraudulent elections. So this statement went out on Saturday and created an almost immediate firestorm of response from uh, the, the Democrat and uh, progressive corners of the political world. And even some, and I emphasize some in that statement, Republicans, uh, questioned the, the, the content of this message, particularly what he is talking about essentially is eliminating the Constitution of the United States. All right, let that sink in for a second. President Trump is suggesting that the uh, rules and regulations and articles found in the Constitution of the United States need to be terminated. So let, let's break that down. Let's look at that for a minute. So let's say for the sake of argument, whether it would be that the sun, the moon, and the stars lined up in some kind of inverse logic uh, influencing arrangement or whatever, that uh, it, it became a, a true fact that the Constitution of the United States was terminated. So think about that for a second. Every law that we have in this country, from laws against murder and you know, seditious conspiracy, all the way down to uh, jaywalking and littering, uh, all of these are directly linked back to the original founding document, the Constitution. So if the Constitution were somehow terminated or eliminated, um, what would that mean? Well, for everyone in the country, it would mean that the, the rights and freedoms that we enjoy now would no longer be uh, enforceable or no longer be justifiable under a governing legal document. So that includes you know, the right to vote. That includes uh, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, 
And, you know, the big one is it would also uh, eliminate the right to bear arms uh, in this country. And, you know, it, it would just be the unraveling of everything in the fabric of the United States uh, back to uh, what it was in 1784 before uh, a group of people got together and wrote the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution uh, down in Philadelphia. So, you know, and, and it, it doesn't matter uh, who you are, where you are, uh, doesn't matter your, your race, your creed, your religion, I mean, none of that. Uh, there would be no support, no backup, uh, no guidance for how uh, people and liberties and rights and, and you know, conflicts uh, would be handled. It, it would basically undo everything in the, you know, the fabric of the United States of America. Uh, in fact, it would most likely mean there wouldn't be uh, anything uniting the states together. Um, so the, <laughs> the idea that, you know, the, the, the proposal from the former president that the Constitution of the United States needs to be terminated, in my opinion, and, and, and again, I will restate that, in my opinion, ranks among the most stupid things I have heard the former president say, ever. He clearly doesn't grasp what exactly the Constitution does. Uh, he clearly, in my opinion, doesn't understand how the Constitution is the foundation for everything that we hold valuable in this country. He clearly doesn't get that it is because of the Constitution that he can say the dumb things that he says and get away with it. So, you know, it, it's, it boggles the mind, and it, and it is created uh, in, in the media and in the political talk circles. Uh, it, is, it has just created this whirlwind of discussion on, you know, what this means how possibly could it be implemented should it come to, to pass? And, you know, what would be the aftermath? Um, now, I'm not a constitutional scholar. Um, I, I am a, a hobbyist student of history. Uh, but to my understanding, if there were no constitution, uh, there'd be no interstate commerce. Uh, there would be, you know, no... Um, guidance on the fair treatment of workers in the workplace. Uh, there would be no rules that govern how goods and services get transported, as, as we saw this week in the news where the rail strike was averted uh, because of a, a vote in Congress that basically in, in makes the uh, agreement uh, mandatory for rail workers. Now, if there was no constitution, number one, there'd be no Congress. Uh, number two, uh, that agreement would have no basis. There, there'd be nothing you know, underneath it, no rule of law, no weight of the authority of the United States. 
so basically, his proposal is to get rid of the United States as it exists now and, I guess, come back with another form of governance, which given statements that he's made uh, in the recent past, uh, kind of signifies that uh, it would be under the rule of an autocratic ruler, um, pro you know, most likely in, in his thinking, named Donald J. Trump. Um, and uh, again, when you look at the totality of the impact of the statement, never mind the impact if it should ever come to fruition, and God, I hope that it doesn't, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it is... It, it, it boggles the mind that someone could actually come up with this thought until you consider who it was. So, you know, and, and for those of you um, who are supporters of the former president, uh, who maybe also listen to this podcast, and I appreciate you listening, by the way, I think it, it's wise to get views from, you know, all around both sides of the aisle and all the way around the circle. So thank you for being here. Um, I, I don't see how anyone could support this theory uh, from former President Trump. Uh, it, it, it literally uh, is, you know, the, the Thanos snap for the United States of America. Um, I, I really was floored when I read this, when it came across my desk. Uh, I had to read it multiple times to make sure that I understood exactly what he was trying to say. And, you know, it, it's, it's just wild and crazy. Um, so I, I'd, I'd love to get your opinion on it, uh, particularly, you know, if you uh, are a, a supporter of the former president, uh, I'd love to get some insight uh, from you as to why uh, this is a, a suggestion and how might it work and, you know, what the possible outcomes would be, uh, please uh, put them down in an email, send it to firedupradio at yahoo.com. Uh, I really, really want to get some feedback uh, from the listeners on their reactions to the, the statement by former President Trump that the Constitution of the United States should be terminated. Uh, we will obviously keep track of this story very closely, and we will bring you any and all updates as they come. Um, but like I said, this, this is um, probably one of the, the, the zaniest things that I have heard uh, the former president make a statement about, and, you know, truth be told, he's made some doozies. Um, but this one clearly ranks near the top. So we're going to keep track on this. We're going to uh, work at gathering some idea of the consensus of opinion uh, around this statement uh, from both um, people who are not supporters of the former president and, and more particularly from people's, people who are, uh, just to try and get an understanding of the thinking behind why the Constitution of the United States should be uh, eliminated uh, outside of the 
the uh, freedom that would give to install an autocratic uh, ruler for life uh, in this country. Uh, I guess ostensibly it would be, you know, Donald J. Trump. Um, you know, so you know, you you can you can have your opinions uh, on the former president, but if you think about what he is proposing, and you know, go beneath the surface of it. Uh, don't just read the words. Take a minute and think about what it means. Think about the things that I talked about that would be impacted if the Constitution of the United States were to disappear tomorrow. What things would go away? Uh, it, it would take away, you know, rights and freedoms. Uh, it would take away uh, protections for those of you out there who value and cherish your guns. It would take away, you know, protections out there uh, for those of you who want the freedom to express your opinions, even if they disagree with the, you know, the leadership uh, of this country. So, I mean, that is a very, very heavy statement. Responses to uh, the former president's statement were swift and, for the most part, um, condemn uh, the statements. Uh, White House spokesman Andrew Bates uh, said on Saturday that his remarks are an, I'm sorry, anathema to the soul of our nation and should be universally condemned. Uh, he's quoted as saying, you cannot only love America when you win. Uh, the American Constitution is a sacrosanct document that for over 200 years has guaranteed that freedom and the rule of law prevail in our great country. The Constitution brings American people together, regardless of party, and elected leaders swear to uphold it. It's the ultimate monument to all of the Americans who have given their lives to defeat self-serving despots that abused their power and trampled on fundamental rights. Uh, Republicans also have been, uh, or at least some of them, have been outspoken in their condemnation. Uh, Republican Representative Liz Cheney, uh, who is an outspoken Trump critic, denounced the former president's uh, statement on Truth Social on Sunday. Uh, she serves as the vice chair of the House Select Committee, uh, and actually she will be leaving office uh, at the end of the current congressional session, uh, having been ousted because she uh, deigned to speak out against uh, then-President Trump uh, in, in being on the January 6th committee. Um, she has been working tirelessly to uh, steer the GOP away from the former president's influence. So, you know, and, and it had impacts uh, on Twitter in terms of from their legal policy and communications teams debated and at times disagreed over whether to restrict the article under the com company's hacked materials policy. Uh, so, you know, it, it's clear that, you know, the, the opinions are running, you know, very hot uh, uh, against the statement and, um, and the criticism of the former president uh, has been coming from many different directions. 
but we will see if it has any impact on the, the behavior or statements from the former president uh, as we go forward. Uh, we will keep track of it. We will keep an eye out uh, on this story as it unfolds further. Uh, but again, if you have an opinion on it, please send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com and let me know what you think. Uh, I truly want to get feedback uh, from the listeners out there as to their opinions. Uh, you know, is, is Trump spot on? Uh, is this, you know, the final wheel falling off his wagon? What, what's the story? What do you think? Let me know at firedupradio at yahoo.com. All right, we'll take our break here, uh, digest this bit of news, and then come back on the flip side and talk about a couple more things, including the upcoming uh, vote uh, in Georgia, which uh, should be occurring, uh, if not uh, the day after this program airs, it will be the day of the airing of this program. So while I won't have any reports on the outcomes, uh, we will be looking at what's going on down in the great state of Georgia. Uh, thank you for listening. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. My name is Jamie Bowles, and I was diagnosed with non-small cell lung cancer in December of 2018. Nobody would even know looking at me that I have stage four lung cancer, and I'm grateful for biomarker testing for that. When I was sitting down with my oncologist, there was already state-of-the-art medication available that I was going to be put on right then and there. Ask your doctor how comprehensive biomarker testing before treatment may help you decide on the best treatment. Visit noonemissed.org to learn more. A public service message from Longevity Foundation. And welcome back. Welcome back to the Fired Up podcast right here on WJMS Media. All right. So as promised, we're going to talk about the uh, elections uh, that happened in Georgia, even though... I can't give you any results because uh, as of the time I'm recording this show, the uh, in-person voting day has not yet happened. Uh, as you may know, I typically record these shows on a Sunday. So right now we don't know or I don't know who won the Georgia runoff, uh, although all the indications seem to point to uh, Senator Warnock as, as being re-elected, uh, he was holding a uh, small but solid uh, majority as of the recording of this show. Uh, and it leads to discussion on you know, why this seat uh, is so critical, even though the Democrats have already locked in their control of the Senate uh, at 50-50 with Vice President Harris as the tie-breaking vote. Uh, it's clear the Democrats would truly love to get that uh, 51st seat uh, to make the Senate a 51-49 proposition. And, um, you know, obviously there are some really important uh, benefits to that. And we're going to talk about those uh, in, in this segment here. So, you know, as I said, um, the Democrats have already secured the majority in the Senate for the next two years, uh, but holding on to Senator Raphael Warnock's seat in Georgia uh, is crucial to their success. And uh, this 
is uh, from an article in the Associated Press uh, that came out um, uh, a while ago, but is still valid now. Um, it talks about if Warnock wins the runoff against Republican Herschel Walker, Democrats will have 51 seats. Uh, and when you have a clear majority in the Senate, uh, even if it's just by one seat, it makes the process of legislating and conducting business in the Senate a lot easier than it is when it is a 50-50 Senate. Um, the, the last two years, Democrats have had to rely on Vice President Harris breaking the ties uh, something like 26 times. Um, so it, it is important that for the Democrats, it is important that they gain that 51st seat. Uh, and you know here's what it would mean. Uh, we'll talk about some of the some of the things that a 51-49 Senate would give the Democrats. So as I said, 51-49 uh, would mean the Democrats have an outright majority. Uh, so that um, Leader Schumer wouldn't have to negotiate any power-sharing agreements with Republican leader Mitch McConnell, uh, which they had to do two years ago, and also back in 2001, which was the last time the Senate was evenly split. In uh, early 2021, uh, and again, this is according to the article, uh, confirmations of new President Joe Biden's nominees were stalled for several weeks while Schumer and McConnell worked out an agreement on how to split committees and move legislation onto the Senate floor. Uh, using the little leverage he had, uh, McConnell threatened not to finalize a deal until Democrats uh, promised they wouldn't try to kill the legislative filibuster that forces uh, a 60 volt threshold. Um, you know, ultimately, McConnell relented after two Democrat senators uh, whose names you know, we have been talking about for a great deal over the last two years. Uh, and that would be West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin and Arizona Senator Kristen Sinema uh, made it clear they would not support uh, eliminating the filibuster, so basically making that point moot. Um, one of the big things that it would do is it would impact uh, committee balance. On the committees in the Senate, right now, they're evenly split between the two parties, again, lining up with the 50-50 power-sharing deal. Uh, and what it means is this creates uh, extra steps when a committee vote is tied forcing Democrats to hold votes on the Senate floor to move ahead um, with bills or nominees. So it means that they, they can't move these uh, items forward as long as they are tied uh, because, you know, they don't have a clear majority. Uh, should they win that 51st seat, Democrats would likely hold an extra seat on every committee uh, giving them the majorities on you know, most, if not all, of the committees and make moving legislation out to the floor after uh, votes, uh, which would likely fall along party lines, a lot easier. So, you know, and, and even President Biden acknowledged this um, before becoming president, 
uh, after Democrats secured 50 seats in the Senate majority. You know, and he had said then, it's always better with 51 because we're in a situation where you don't have to have an even makeup of the committees. And so that's why it's important mostly. But it's just simply better. The bigger the numbers, the better. And as I said, you know, through the last two years, uh, we have heard the names mentioned in cinema more times than I care to count, uh, particularly as uh, roadblocks to uh, substantial pieces of President Biden's legislative agenda, uh, forcing, for example, a reworking of his Build Back Better program into uh, smaller, uh, quote, more manageable, close quote, uh, pieces uh, that he could get through the, the split caucus. Uh, so the extra seat would give Democrats the ability to pass bills while losing one vote within their caucus, a luxury they haven't had over the last two years. Uh, basically, it, it's going to take some of the power that Senator Manchin in particular has been wielding uh, over the Senate um, because of the 50-50 tie. Um, you know, so, you know, and, and this has included, you know, uh, Biden's plans uh, for health, climate, and economic package. Uh, Manchin kept that stalled for months until uh, Leader Schumer negotiated a narrower version with the West Virginia senator. Uh, so, you know, it, it would, you know, it, it, that pressure, uh, according to the article, could be even more acute in the next Congress as Manchin and Cinema, a fellow moderate, are both up for re-election and will want to prove their bipartisan credentials. So we may see, you know, more of this play out under the the idea that in two years both Manchin and Cinema will be up for re-election, and you know, they're going to have to make friends, not enemies, um, you know, uh, among not only their constituents but among their fellow senators, uh, so that they they can at least hope to get the support they need to be re-elected. One of the biggest advantages to having that extra seat is that it is going to uh, make it possible for Democrats to confirm federal judges uh, very quickly because they can vote along party lines. They have the you know 51 votes. Uh, they're not going to have to negotiate uh, you know judgeships with Republicans. So even though the Republicans uh, will take charge of the House, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, downstream from here, um, you know, it, they, they are still, Democrats, that is, are still going to have uh, to struggle uh, or they won't have much of a chance to pass major legislation. So one of Schumer's main priorities will be confirming judges nominated by Biden in the last two years of his term. Uh, and uh, the last time I checked, I believe there was still something like uh, 160 or more uh, positions on the federal benches around the country that still need to be filled. So um, they could move forward at a rapid pace and fill many of those with uh, Democratic appointments uh, rather than Republican appointments. 
And, you know, if you've been following the news, you, you've seen uh, what kind of um, headaches Republican appointed judges um, have created uh, over various issues, you know, a lot of which surrounding the former president, uh, the January 6th insurrection and so forth. So this um, this came about because. A, a change in the rules that was uh, put out from uh, then Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid uh, over a decade ago allowed the Senate to pass judges with only a simple majority or 51 votes. So winning the Warnock seat would make that uh, process easier and more expedient. Uh, it would also uh, it would also free up Vice President Harris uh, to leave Washington for you know other duties uh, because she wouldn't have to stay close uh, to Washington in order to be available to break uh, any ties. So she's already broken 26 tied votes as vice president, twice as many as Mike Pence did in his four years on the job, and and again she's already only served in the role for two years. Um, and, you know, the, again, as I said, the need to break tie votes meant that Harris had to, you know, keep close to Washington. Essentially, she was leashed to the Capitol building, uh, so that she would be available on short notice to, uh, break ties when the Senate is holding important, uh, votes. Um, you know, it's, it's clear that having that even that one vote cushion is going to mean a tremendous uh, boost to the amount of work the Democrats will be able to accomplish in the Senate. Now, that doesn't mean that you know everything is going to you know just flow downhill like water, um, because there are bills that do have you know Democratic uh, opposition. They are going to need to work the details with some members of their caucus in order to get things done. But it will definitely, um, you know, make the process a lot more efficient and a lot smoother. Now, that doesn't negate the fact that on the other side of the building, uh, Republicans uh, got control of the House of Representatives uh, making for a split Congress. So, you know, there's there's going to be work that's needed to be done in order to get uh, Democrat-leaded uh, agenda items through the House. Now, some things to note, and you've, you've probably heard this, that even though the Republicans have won the majority in the House, uh, their majority is razor thin uh, at uh, they have 221 seats and the Democrats have 213. Uh, so 218 uh, is needed for the majority. So the Republicans have a three seat uh, overage on the number of seats they need for majority vote. And, you know, a uh, eight seat overall uh, advantage over the Democrats. So, I mean, that that's not 
a huge margin by any stretch. And there's been much talk about how this flies in the face of, of what history has shown us over the years, that typically the, um, the party out of power, that is the opposition party, generally gains an average of about 26 seats uh, in the House in the midterm elections, and they gain five or six seats on average in the Senate in, in the midterms. Um, you know, and, you know, uh, presidents in the past um, have lost, you know, a, a, a significant number of seats in their midterms. Uh, kind of working backwards, uh, former President Trump lost 40 seats in the House uh, in his uh, midterm. Um, you know, President Obama lost uh, 50 or 55 seats in the House. Uh, and, you know, uh, President Bush, George W. Bush, lost 30 seats in the House. So uh, the fact that the Republicans only gained a, a net advantage over the Democrats of eight seats uh, and uh, three seats above the, the threshold for majority uh, indicates and, and has been much talked about as actually kind of a win for Democrats. Um, in that, yeah, they, they lost the House, but the damage was a lot less than anticipated. You know, there, there's been all the talk about uh, the blue dam that got put up and blocked the red wave that was expected to roll through uh, the House of Representatives in the midterms. Uh, it also means that Democrats will have a much, uh, well, <laughs> a, a somewhat easier process to regain control of the House uh, as they literally will only need to make up uh, five uh, net seats uh, in the 2024 uh, congressional elections in order to regain the 218 seats they need to have the majority in the House. Uh, they are still going to need to make sure they keep working for control of the Senate and we will see how that plays out as we get closer and closer to the 2024 uh, general election. Uh, it, it is, you know, going to be interesting. We're, we're getting strapped in for a long ride. And we'll be talking about, you know, potential elections uh, pretty much uh, every episode going forward for the next two years. So get ready. We'll, we'll keep bringing you news on that front. Uh, with regard to the election in Georgia, um, you know, it, it's, it's come down to uh, a choice between an incumbent Democratic senator uh, who, you know, has the, the experience of, you know, the last two years of actually being in the Senate uh, and working on, you know, doing the people's business, and a neophyte Republican candidate uh, who has, to put it nicely, um, really kind of uh, muddied the, the waters of his candidacy with controversy and scandal and misstatements and, and so forth. Um, so, for you folks down in Georgia, 
you have a a choice to make, uh, and you know you you need to consider some things. So let let's let's look a little bit at you know what a a Warnock victory and and Senate uh, appointment for six years uh, versus a Walker victory and Senate appointment for six years. Uh, what it means in some broad general terms. Uh, as I said, Senator uh, Warnock is the incumbent. He was elected in the runoff election in 2020. Um, he has been serving in the Senate for the past two years. So he has you know, both experience and credentials uh, to be the senator from Georgia. Um, he you know, is... A, a you know a, a an educated man. He is a uh, a pastor. Uh, he, in fact, he is the pastor at the church uh, where Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, preached from Ebenezer Baptist Church. Uh, he has been on the forefront of many of the key issues that the Democrats have been working toward uh, in the Senate uh, over the last two years. Uh, when you you speak of you know his opponent Herschel Walker uh, he is you know a newbie in terms of his Senate experience he has not held an elected office uh, at all prior to this um, when when the the majority in the Senate was a little bit more undefined uh, the support that he received from the Republican Party was a lot more vocal and a lot stronger because they they wanted that seat uh, to be Republican. Um, it, it is clear that you know Herschel Walker, uh, by some accounts, is unqualified to be a senator. Um, I won't weigh in my opinion uh, pro or con either way on that. Uh, I will say that if you want to judge uh, his um, preparedness to be a senator, uh, you really need to look no further than any of his his campaign speeches or public appearances uh, or you know read across um, the full circle of articles about things that he has said and things that he has done. Uh, and you can come to your own conclusion. Um, it, it is clear that uh, should he be elected, uh, it is not going to change the majority in the Senate. It's really just going to maintain the status quo at 50-50 with uh, Vice President Harris breaking tie votes for the next two years. Um, but he's going to be that, um, you know, that rubber stamp that yes man for the Republican leadership that they were initially looking for when uh, he was uh, elevated to his candidacy uh, by former President Trump, um, you know, a, a year and a half, two years ago. So Georgians, you have a, a mighty important decision to make um, either uh, again, depending on when this show airs, either tomorrow or today, uh, it is, you know, the only remaining mechanism to vote is in-person voting. So if you have not voted, 
I mean, if you haven't early voted, you're going to need to get to a polling place and you're going to also need to prepare for uh, probably some long lines. So, you know, pack a lunch, uh, bring some water because, you know, according to the, the rules, no one can bring you any any food or water while you're in line um, and prepare to tough it out to get your opportunity to vote. Don't let those long lines, uh, Democrats or Republicans, don't let those long lines deter you from casting your ballot. Uh, it is it is critical uh, for our country. It is critical for the the Senate. Uh, it is critical for Georgia that we have this election, that we get through it, and that you know it is it is done in a, as fair. Uh, and and transparent way as possible, uh, but it just needs to get done. So you know, as we've been talking about for the last two years since since the 2020 general, um, it, it it's all down and it all comes to rest on you, the voters, on on getting out, getting your vote in. Uh, making sure that it it counts, making sure that you get it done. So you know, let let's make sure that we're reaching out for those of you uh, who may not live in Georgia, but you may know people in Georgia or have family there, uh, or you know, coworkers or whatever. Uh, reach out to them, find out if they've already voted, and if not, uh, do everything you can to encourage them to get out and vote. Uh, the 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 key is in numbers and from what we're seeing uh, based on the early voting uh, statistics um, about a million and a half or more uh, voters as of Sunday I believe it was uh, like 1.7 or 1.8 million votes have been cast early in the Georgia runoff so uh, this could look to be Definitely the highest vote count of any midterm election in the state of Georgia ever. Uh, and, you know, and that's a good thing. Uh, statistically, from what we see in the news uh, right now, the early vote count uh, is leaning heavily uh, toward Democratic voters. Uh, but Democrats, don't let that stop you. Don't think that it's in the bag and that you can stay home. Uh, Republicans. You know, you have to get out and vote as well. Make your voices heard uh, because it is a numbers game. So let's make sure that we we take this race all the way through the tape, all the way through the finish line uh, and that we get it done so that we can move forward with a clear understanding of how our Senate is going to function for the next two years. So hopefully uh, this episode is, has been helpful. Again, if you have any questions or comments, please, please reach out to the show. Uh, our email address is firedupradio, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on not just the Georgia election, but all of the other news uh, that we've talked about or any subject under the umbrella of politics that you want to bring up. If there's something you want me to do uh, a show on or a segment on, let me know and I will gladly, you know, put in the research and and get a show 
queued up to respond to your request. So that's going to do it for this episode. As always, I am so grateful that you uh, listen and download uh, the podcast each week. Uh, Please take care. Please stay safe. Uh, Do all the things you need to protect yourself from COVID and MPOX uh, and, you know, everything else that you need to be safe. And I look forward to bringing you another show where we will talk about what has transpired in the elections. Uh, And I look forward to doing that again in seven days. Take care, everybody. 